Hello, and welcome to Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with actress Kelly McCormick and film director John Grayson. That's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKeek. Well, hello again. It's been a minute, podcast world. In fact, it's been about six or seven weeks, I think, since I've uh, put out an episode. I guess it was semi-intentional on my part. Um, As you probably know, I had been working in the film industry for a while. I was doing a gig uh, on a Netflix TV show and then got a three-week job on a Hallmark film. And working 16, 17-hour days for a month just kind of got the better of me. So I just needed to take a break, take a breather, hit reset. And going forward, I'm still going to do the podcast, um, but it might not be as frequent. It might not be twice a week. It might not even be once a week. It might be... Once a week, it could be once every two weeks, maybe once a month. I, uh, as I start to get more into film work, uh, I know that that's going to leave me with less time to do interviews, to schedule interviews, etc. So, you know, we'll, uh, We'll see where life goes. But life on this show is going to be great. My first guest is an actress and writer who has appeared in such series as The Nidos of Duquesne. And that's my DJ. She stars in the new feature film, Sugar Daddy, which she also wrote and recently had its premiere at the Whistler Film Festival in December uh, and was released nationally on April 9th. I know, I'm a little late. This interview was recorded at the end of March. Sugar Daddy is a collaboration in the truest sense. It co-stars Colin Fiore and also features the costume designer in a small role. This is my conversation with Kelly McCormick. Hey Kelly, how's it going? Um, It's going well, how are you? Thank you for doing this. Thank you, yes. Just uh, enjoying this weather out in the west coast. yeah, I'm in the West Coast too. Yeah, oh, I'm in Victoria, so. Oh, I'm in Roberts Creek, so I'm like across from you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I was. About, I think it was about hit about 13 degrees here yesterday. It was nice. I was on. I was on set, and I could lose all my layers. <laughs> <laughs> the layering principle, as we say in Canada. <laughs> yep. Well, it was. You know, it was the thing. It was just like I would. I, you know, I would take off my. You know, like my sort of my big jacket. And then, oh, it's shade. Okay, put it back on. Oh, now the sun's it. Okay, now I take it back off. I'm just like, I'm just, uh, just too tired of that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, let's talk about uh, Sugar Daddy. This yeah. is uh, a new film that I know you wrote. Um, and it premiered at Whistler uh, over, over the, uh, back in December. Um, having a film that is, is so close to you, being that you were actor, writer, and producer, premiering 
in your home province, not far from where you live. What, how does that feel as a, as a creator, as a filmmaker? Yeah, I mean, it, it would feel a lot better if we could all get together <laughs> in person. Um, because as, as you mentioned, like I grew up in Vancouver and um, the filmmaking scene in BC and the art making scene in BC is, is very important to me. Um, it would have been nice to have family members come and watch this moment because we've all been working towards it for five years. And uh, my two incredible creative producers, Lauren Grant and Lori Lazinski are also West Coast or Lauren's from the West Coast and Lori is based in the West Coast. So it would have been really lovely and it was really meaningful for us to premiere at Whistler because everyone there is so intelligent and just a great bunch of cinephiles. I, I know you've you've done done some writing before. I think did you help at least partially write um the the Nadeaus or whatever that C, uh, fake CBC documentary was? Um, uh, I refuse to say it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the documentary for the CBC, um, how, how much, you know, given that you, your background as an actor, how much of, of your writing is just an extension of, of you as, as an actor? Well, I didn't. To be clear, I didn't write The Nadeaus of Duquesne Island. I produced it and helped develop it with Aaron Schroeder, who's the writer, and Sam Zweblin, who's the director. Um, I don't know if it's an, I don't think my writing is an extension of my acting because I also write plays and I write novels and I write um, short form and various different formats. I my the more acute answer to that, I think, would be it all comes from a very similar place. I pretty uh, vigilantly follow the Stephen Sondheim adage, uh, content dictates form. And so oftentimes, Stephen Sondheim being, you know, the greatest composer and lyricist for American theater, um, he is my absolute true north god of a creative inspiration. And uh, so anytime I write something, it's in tandem in that moment. I, I am very clear and aware of what format it's gonna sort of exhibition in. So it's clear to me if it's a one woman show, if it's a theater piece, if it's a dance piece, if it's a book, if it's a film, if it's a play. Um, but I don't think that my writing is an extension of my acting. I just think they are all swimming in the same pool. How how early on in this process did you realize Sugar Daddy was going to be a film? And was it always a foregone conclusion that you were going to play the lead? It was from its very inception was going to be a film and also from its very inception it was going to be a film I was going to use as an engine for myself as an actor. I want, I had made two other films and I was being asked a lot what kind of movies do I make and the films I had made before were very much collaborative uh, films that I had made with a bunch of friends and so I hadn't really had the time to sit down and think about how I wanted to participate as a filmmaker and how I wanted to, what I wanted to say and put out there. So um, I wrote this film as affectionately my Rocky, as in the thing that I would pitch around and, and say, this is, this is my film and I'm going to play this part. And thankfully, um, my producers, Lori and Lauren, were absolutely 100% supportive of me portraying the role from the very beginning and supported me every time we got new partners involved. Um, so I thank them for that because, uh, you know, the more traction we got, the more interest we got, it could have been easy to say, well, let's get someone more notable to play this role. You, you, you mentioned Rocky, um, which of course is, is, I think uses an example, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck talked about it, how that was their answer when everyone says who's going to star in it. But on that note, have you ever thought about directing as well? Yep, I have directed. Um, I have essentially all the projects I have in the works right now, I'm also directing. 
Um, directing, I've directed for theater quite a bit, quite a bit, and a little bit for film. But with this project, I was excited about the idea of bringing on someone who comes from a totally different um, pedigree and a different sort of vibe. And uh, I never intended to sort of like be the only person whose voice was involved in this. And I will say, like the film was directed by Wendy, but also directed by, in some ways, in collaboration with my two producers, Lauren Grant and Laura Lezinski and myself, and the costume designer and the production designer and the DP, like it was a very collaborative process um, from start to finish. Uh, you, you, you mentioned your, your costume designer, M Mara, is it? Um, yeah. And she, wasn't she also in the film? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mara. Mara's my uh, best friend and um, lifetime collaborator. She costume designed the Nadeau's of Duquesne Island. And, um, and uh, so did Jesse Jerome, who's the production designer on this film. So those two incredible women and artists I've been quite literally in the woods with and making the Nadeau's. So it was really exciting to bring them both onto this project. Mara is also an incredible actor. Her and I met um, actually on stage in a musical many years ago. And so I wrote that part with her voice in my head. And so when it came time to casting, it just sort of had to be her because it is so clearly her. And uh, yeah, so she's the costume designer. She's also in the film, which I love. And um, yeah, you get to see how talented she is from both perspectives. You know, speaking of the film, you you managed to put together a great cast. You've got uh, Kenatia Horn, uh, uh, is it Aaron Ashmore that's in it, uh, and of course, um, I think Michelle Morgan and uh, Colm Fiore, who everyone in if you're a Canadian and you don't love Colm Fiore, I think you we have to revoke your citizenship. Um, as a producer, how involved were you in, in assembling all the cast? Oh, as involved as anyone could be. I mean, those are all my friends. Besides Colin Fiore, I didn't know him beforehand, but I knew of him, of course, as you said. But, <laughs> um, you know, an indie film, an indie art house film at this budget level, you rely on people going to bat for you and saying yes and willing to support you in this art project. So there was a lot of text messages being sent, being like, yo, can, can you come out for my film? Um, and, uh, you know, I was in the audition room reading with people on my, like, as my character, as myself. And again, the film was uh, sort of a film made by committee and myself, Lauren, Lori, and Wendy made all these decisions as a team and uh so there was never really a point where any of us any four of us sort of stepped out and there still isn't a point we all still the four of us make all these decisions together uh you know you mentioned it's an indie film with, with a smaller budget and what does it do not only for the film but for you as a filmmaker to have a star like Colm come aboard and said yes i will do this what does it mean for the film? Yeah, and, 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 and how does, I guess, how does it make you feel as, as, as a filmmaker? You know, here's this great, great star coming in who agrees to do your, your, your passion project. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge honor. And I will say also the part he's playing is at times problematic, is difficult, is challenging it challenges people and men of his age range and of, of his stature so it required not only a great actor who has some cachet and audience pull it required an ally it required it required a male ally to say yes i see what this script is trying to do yes i see what these women are trying to burn down let me help them burn it down and that's what we found in Colin Fiore. And I thank the artistic heavens every day. <laughs> he said yes to our pleading letter, which was um, written from the heart. And he just, we couldn't have a better artistic partner in this film than Colin. You know, you, 
you mentioned, you know, the, the film was called Sugar Daddy, and it's about your character who sort of becomes, you know, sort of enters this world of online dating and, and, and sugar daddies. What kind of research goes in for you as a creator when you're when you're crafting this type of story? Uh, well, pretty much as much research research as I can get my hands on. I'm a complete and utter workaholic, and I pretty much throw myself 5,000% in everything that I do. Um, even saying workaholic is sort of disingenuous because I don't consider it work. It's just what I'm obsessed with. <laughs> um, so in terms of the sugar daddy, sugar babying world, I did a lot of research, but I also have a lot of experience with it. I have lots of um, close relationships with people who have had experiences with it um, in, in different ways, in, in, the, in the way that the film sort of posits. I've had experiences with modified sexuality and being paid in ways that are disorienting and disorientingly attached to my performance, my performative gender. So it was a, it was a combination of uh, didactic research and lived experience and just talking with people and trying to um, bring it all together and put it in a boiling pot and turn it around. What is it do you think say about the world and the culture in today that something like one in four, one in three relationships now begin online? Um, it's an interesting thing because I remember when online dating started and we were all thinking, what? You met someone online? That sounds horrific. But that was when chat rooms were a dark and scary place and they were being monitored by your parents. Um, but we are all becoming so uh, fluent with being able to represent ourselves with the written word, with via text message online. And, and so I think it's possible that you are able to communicate with someone and show them your personality via, via you know, your phone or an email or whatnot. And whatnot. But again, I'm a Luddite, so I, I don't have much experience in the realm of like online dating or anything like that. So I don't know if I can speak to how, where the industry is going or how that's going, but um, we did want to make this film feel ultra modern and resonate with young people and um, with women who are navigating the sexual spaces in the dating world and the, 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 their own commodified realms of, um, you know, sex. So it was important that we delved into those authentic interactions. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I'm the wrong person to ask about like, what's the state, what's the state of online dating? Cause I do not date and do not go online. <laughs> you know, um, we, I, we sort of joked about how Colm Fiore is a, is a Canadian institution and you've been fortunate to be part of another, I think Canadian comic institution in, in, in Letterkenny. Um, what, what is, what is your favorite Letterkenny experience? Well, I mean, you may notice that all the, there's three letter candy, but myself, Benetio Horn and Jess Huguero are all in a scene together, which I think is super funny because because <clears throat> the three of us are in letter candy together. But um, my favorite letter candy experience, when, when Jess Huguero and I had to be on the show first, like our first scene, it was in the, in the locker room where we have to give these like rapid insults back and forth. And we're saying the most gnarly shit. Like we're just saying the most absolute, amazingly grotesque and abhorrent things about each other. Um, and they're so funny, but we, we were so nervous cause we wanted to, you know, do well on the show because as you said, it's this Canadian institution and it was a huge honor to get cast in that show. So we're taking it so seriously and neither of us are laughing because we're just focusing on getting it right. But all the women, the amazing actual hockey players from Sudbury, cannot stop laughing. So they're just spitting themselves laughing. And we're just standing there like, you know, machine gunning the lines back and forth. And, the, and they're all losing it. And it was really fun to make them laugh. Uh, and you've also dabbled in short form. And you appeared on one of my, or a, a web series that I discovered a few years ago, That's My DJ. Um, which, which I really like. What was enjoyable about that series for you? 
Again, another incredible ensemble cast of Toronto actors. There's just so much talent in this city. Uh, it's, 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 it's crazy. And I really enjoyed playing that character and living in that world and working with um, DW and Emily Pigford and Christopher Hayes and uh, you know Christian Brune and all my buds. Like these are all just friends that I go drinking with and ride my bike with and hang out in Trinity Bellwoods and all that, you know, Toronto fun. So I think it just felt like a party. And I think that's what um, DW wanted and that's what Emily wanted. So it, it felt like a party making it. Um, it was just, I mean, I think I ate cereal half the time, which I think is <laughs> everyone's dream. Year, years ago in Victoria, like 2001, I was in a musical with Emily. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, so we go we go way back. She, although she's like the 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 kindest, sweetest, like sparkly person I've ever met. Like, how do yeah. you get nicer than Emily Paper? No, like, she, how is that possible? Like, you cannot. <laughs> no, she, she was. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were like I think probably ten when we did the show together. But yeah, even back then, she was just like super friendly, super yeah. like. Humanity uh, has peaked with her. She's just <laughs> too good. Um, another show that I wanted to ask you about, which I'm super intrigued, is you're going to be joining the cast of the A League of Your Own series. Mm -hmm. um, are you a fan of the uh, of the original? Of course. I mean, I grew up playing sports. It's like one of two female sports movies, unfortunately. So, of course, you can't make it through the late '90s, early 2000s without seeing that film. It's as found. It's as foundational as Goonies, Princess Bride. You know, uh, I, I mean, those are, and, and The Labyrinth, which is my masterpiece of favorite film. Um, yeah, it's it's a huge honor. Uh, the cast is absolutely bonkers. It's an embarrassment how good that cast is. I mean, Abby Jacobson, Darcy Carden, um, Roberta Calindrez, Peter Lance, Melanie Field, um, Molly Ephraim, it's like, it, is a little ridiculous how good the cast is. So we're gonna have a lot of fun. And um, yeah, like Shante Adams, who I think is in a film with Michael B. Michael B. Jordan right now, Michael B. Jordan. And uh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be so good. I'm so excited. And I heard that uh, Jamie Babbitt directed the the pilot. Um, she's, she's a great, I think, cult filmmaker uh, of the 90s, uh, but I'm a cheerleader, I think is probably, uh, her most famous film, uh, working with somebody like her. Yeah, you know, the, the show is gonna be incredibly queer and incredibly um, uh, sex positive in that way. And uh, working with a cult filmmaker and an idol of mine, Jamie Babbitt was so special. And uh, um, Will Graham, the writer, along with Abby Jacobson, just like just huge artistic creative minds and I'm so excited. We have Jamie. Yeah, I'm not a, not not a cheerleader. Is like absolutely. <laughs> I mean, again, that's up there for me with um with like the League of Their Own in terms of like formative pieces pieces of art. Uh, and of course, it's it's taking it's taking place in World War II era, uh, 1943. As a performer, what do you like about uh, getting to explore period pieces? You know, eras that were 70, 80 years ago. Well, I think for my character on that show, but then also in general, like feelings that I struggle with now, like questions of gender and sexuality, I, it's interesting to to visit those feelings in in period pieces because the feelings are the same, but the words and the terminology and the sort of self-respect might be different. So you get to explore, uh, you know, universal themes that humanity is struggling with, but sort of put them in a time period where it doesn't have as much agency or doesn't have as much voice. So um, it's like the themes are the same, but the struggle is different. And I really connect with that. Uh, just to just to wrap up here and taking it back to uh, Sugar Daddy, uh, any favorite moments you had from filming? Oh my God, the rap party! <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the rap party was a banger, so I, I will say that. But um, favorite moments from shooting, I think probably just seeing every woman on set take 
the reins and make the character their own and fight for her and what she's struggling with and the disorienting feelings that she feels, you know, embodying them themselves in their own department and with their own artistry. I, the ownership of this film by various talented powerhouse, ruthlessly creative women has been the constant joy of the whole process. Well, the film is Sugar Daddy, uh, and it is out soon, I believe, on uh, uh, streaming, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we uh, all... April 6th on VOD. <laughs> April 6th on VOD. Well, uh, Sugar Daddy, we all look forward to seeing it. Uh, I know I will. I know everyone else will. Uh, Kelly McCormick, thanks so much for your, for your time today. No problem. Thank you. Alrighty, have a good day. You too. Cheers. Bye. All right. That was Kelly McCormick. Her new film, Sugar Daddy, is out now. In the world of Canadian cinema, there are few directors quite like John Grayson. He attracted controversy when in 2009 he withdrew his documentary covered from the Toronto Film Festival to protest the inaugural city to city spotlight on the city of Tel Aviv. Although there was many against him, several, including Ken Loach, Jane Fonda, Danny Glover, and Naomi Klein, reached out in support. Grayson has also made the films Zero Patience, Lilies, and Uncut, as well as the series Queer as Folk and many other documentaries including The Ads Epidemic Kipling Meets the Cowboy Fig Trees and his most recent the experimental documentary International Dawn Chorus Day, which uses the International Dawn Chorus Day, which is a, a, a day for started by the Audubon Society, and uses bird songs to tell the story of queer refugees in Canada. The film was released on April 29th, and I got to speak with John about the film a few weeks back. This is me and John Grayson. Uh, you know, it's about the Middle East in a way, and you got to pay, they're stuck in the Middle East, and you got the Suez Canal there. Stuck in Egypt. Oh, my God. So it's, in fact, it's right on topic. You're right. But let's, let's, we'll, we'll get it back to, the, the um, tragic optimism of the Dawn Chorus. How's that? Yes, I, I, <laughs> I had a chance to, to watch the, the piece. Um, Good. I had, I must say, I never knew of the term Dawn Chorus with, with the birds. Um, what, what made you sort of want to tell the story of Sarah Hagazi and Shady Habas using essentially bird songs it's it started as a complete coincidence the day before international dawn chorus day and though I've, I've always loved the dawn chorus i had no idea there was an international dawn chorus day so i find out about it and i'm so charmed by this idea and you know this is the start of our first lockdown and i'm getting cabin fever so i'm thinking oh that'd be fun like mobilize some friends we'll all shoot our dawn choruses around the world and then the, the next, within the same hour, I heard the news about Shadi. And it just, it was like a kick in the gut because he died in the same 
prison I'd been in. Uh, and his particular story just reverberated the tragic nature of his last letters, um, everything about it, even in those in that first day of hearing the news about his death, really um, hurt. So I thought, well, let's let's these two things have landed on my desk. Let's put them together. And so the idea was born birds talking about shoddy. Um, and then as we were editing, um, and it was just this focused thing about shoddy, um, Sara, a month later, took her life. And I'd known Sara a bit through Rainbow Railroad and through our group of Toronto activists just trying to support the Egyptians who came in as refugees. Um, and I had met her a couple times, including at the local Toronto Mashrulela concert, where um, it was it was incredibly moving. I I hope I capture some of that in the film. You know, the, her and her friends reuniting and reliving what had happened to them a year before in Egypt when they're arrested for flying a rainbow flag, and now they can be in Toronto and fly the flag. But there was a lot of tears as much as there was the joy of the night. So it was she was very memorable. She was a very incredibly warm, charismatic person. But the, that, that obviously, you know, she wasn't able to overcome the demons that, that pursued her. Um, and so inevitably, she became a part of the story. And as we kept editing, um, then realizing that her, her death was going way beyond Toronto or her family in Egypt or friends in Egypt, but, but becoming this international phenomena of murals and songs. And so the story just kept, kept growing as we edited. it. And um, yeah. And of course the story continues. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've heard about Sena safe was just sentenced to a year and a half, 18 months in prison for the sim in the same prison for trying to deliver a letter to her brother, um, also incarcerated. These are a family of a family of wonderful peace activists. Um, and what what do the authorities do? The, well, they're just trying to lock them all up and throw away the key. So there's no end in sight. Uh, but um, this was this was some of the backstory of how this video, this particular video, evolved. How much did you have to learn about birds in order to make this? <laughs> I still, my my friends who were true birders, still tease me, and I'm I'm so ignorant. And there's there's such expertise, like you can drown in um, the extraordinary riches of bird of ornithology um, that are out there, but. Uh, I continue to also, like one of the nice things is I listen in a different way. So my backyard right now is full of grackles and, and robins. Um, and the grackles are particularly wonderful in their raucous way. Uh, but also friends send me articles like the singer in the UK who, he goes into the woods near Birmingham and collaborates collaborates with the nightingales and the nightingales only sing for six weeks a year and so he'll go in and sing songs with them and do beautiful recordings so i i'm now i i'm dipping a toe into the amazing world of ornithology and mostly falling flat on my face compared to the expertise of others it's interesting because it's it's alluded there to um, in the film with uh, the concept of mantique, I think, which was in manuscript written in the in the twelfth century, and that you know bird watching is one of the oldest pastimes continuously. Yeah. I think that the yeah. world has had. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? Why do you think these creatures, these species, continue to fascinate us? The birds are. Birds are fascinating in every way. Just their songs, uh, like the the depth of knowledge that we we tiptoe towards, and we may have it all wrong, but we tiptoe towards further and further knowledge through study, of trying to understand. Blackbirds have twelve hundred different distinct calls that have been recorded and and analyzed. Um, the the idea that birds just sing in simple loops is in some species true, and in other species, it doesn't even start to 
capture the complexity of their bird songs. So I think we're, I think we're awed by things we can't, we know we can't quite comprehend, but we're drawn to the beauty of bird song. Of course, birds have are also pets, and but the, a big part of um, the pet rituals involving birds involve their song. Uh, so it's it's uh, every I think everyone everyone's going to have a different answer about at the role birds play in their lives. But I go back to a beautiful book that my friend Kia wrote a couple of years ago about bird watching, and she went from zero. She was a bit like me. She went from zero, but in a period in her life, she discovered bird watching as a way of dealing with stress and, and coping with, with trauma in her life and found bird watching just, she dove in deep. And uh, it's, an, it's an incredibly beautiful book that I think captures, the, captures some of the answers for you. You know, it's interesting. I, I remember there being a couple of films about the Audubon Society or, or bird watchers out a few years ago, and they were both comedies. Uh, Steve Martin and Jack Black were in one, I think. Uh, and then there was Luke Perry played a character in Will and Grace, who was a bird watcher. And they're sort of all like these these comic nerds, I guess. As 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 someone who is an amateur bird watcher, is is there a certain stereotype that we that we have about them that is either correct or incorrect? It's it's I'm still not even there. I'm still not an official amateur, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I, I'm still on the threshold, but. Um, I would say the subculture is definitely fascinating. And I, I'm garnering this just from my friends who are true bird watchers. Um, and um, the, the qualities of, you know, nerdiness and patience and um, it, the, that incredible meditative patience around not just waiting, but then discerning, being able to separate out and tease out from all the cacophony the, the sound of what the bird is is singing and distinguishing distinguishing the calls and then anthropomorphizing the calls and we have a lot of you know we we play a lot with that in terms of making up or or translating some bird calls into uh, content about prisons so it's it's I I would say you know I I don't uh, I think I think the, I think the subculture fascinates me. So I'm not sure if Steve Martin's on the right track. I think he should have another look. Well, y y you know, uh, I'm curious. You it was sort of you were you were subtitling what what the birds were talking about. Um, you know about prisons. Obviously, that's not what ac what the birds were actually saying. Well, um, do we know? <laughs> but you know, j just in terms of learning ab about the different songs where you did you talk with ornitho like real ornithologists at all about how how to listen for certain i guess visual or or, or auditory clues in, in in how birds sing or, or or speak no and and could have should have but i found all my all my research was focusing more on egypt so in some ways I think I think the film is pretty transparent. I don't think anyone's going to be fooled <laughs> any sort of earnestness or earnest engagement with true ornithology. And and people are going to going to know that the focus, the actual the actual topic approached obliquely through the birds is Egypt and what's going on in Egypt. And that's where that's where most of our research energy was trying to trying to craft a story that would on the one hand um capture reach reach people who might not be thinking about Egypt or feeling that Egypt is part of their lives that's a vast majority of most of us I think around the world but through this device of listening to birds maybe we start to listen and care about Egypt and um, the, the, the the ongoing crisis which only deepens um, with each month that passes I mean it it's I, 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 in fact, as we approach International Dawn Chorus Day, I'm wondering, should we make another, another, a follow-up um, that captures what's going on this year, which is, I probably would end up focusing on Sana Saif, who's a fellow filmmaker, a wonderful activist who came out of Tahrir Square, um, and um, thinking, should we, should we 
do another should we do another version especially since we're again in in lockdown i i, I have two months to decide or a month and a half to decide you know it's it's interesting because you know being being gay i think is still illegal in something like 74 countries now yeah. um but lately a lot of the 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 focus has been on the arab world the middle east and specifically egypt i think in especially yeah. in, in in relation to the other countries where it where it is still legal any reason as to why you think there's been so much focus on egypt and and, and in cairo recently it's 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 absolutely about the opportunism of, of Sisi's regime. He's using, uh, a, he's using a family values attack on gays as a way to whip up uh, support from a public. He's out persecuting everybody, everybody in civil society, whether it's women or peace activists or anyone who's slightly outside of a narrow right-wing definition of we want a dictator and you're a dictator he's out to attack and gays become an easy manipulative way to whip up a moral frenzy a moral panic around gays and transsexuals stealing our children and corrupting and depravity and etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is why they're arresting people for flying rainbow flags it's absolute opportunism. It, it, it has nothing to do with true ideology. Who cares? Like he doesn't, in fact, I doubt that he actually cares at all in terms of any moral reason. It's all about power. It's all about exercising power to perpetuate what's truly his reign of terror. And he's no different than many dictators. Opportunist dictators throughout history have used queers and gays and, and trans people as a as a uh, a wrench or a wedge i i look no further than donald trump as a recent example in our neck of the woods you know i it's from at least a, a an uncultured western perspective it it seems as if egypt has had a a, a tough run of leaders in the last uh several years of course when the Arab Spring started we had mubarak then morsi and now al sisi as as someone who documents true events for a living, um, any any thought as 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 to why? Well, the, I think I think what I try and do is um, use art to bring a queer perspective to different issues, and whether it's AIDS activism or prison justice, or um, but you know, I'm I've been working a lot on. Israeli apartheid and um, solidarity with with queer Palestinians. So, whatever topic, trying to use art to to shed new light in a way that maybe journalism can't do, or it's it's a different perspective than what journalism brings. Um, but I think um, the the important thing that fuels certainly international Don Course and also the work of Sarah and Shadi was the real incredible optimism and hope of the Arab Spring and particularly the Tahrir Square movement. This was a moment of a new generation gathering to peacefully fight for democracy and um, open up some space for themselves after, after decades of dictatorship. And then Morsi's regime through the coup, through Sisi's coup, was overthrown and um, a new a new shadow descended called the new dictatorship uh, and um, so there's like I think in our own backyard we can point to Canada and the US and many Western nations collusion allowing the the coup to occur without protest and business as usual with CC when Canada and the US have not just, normalized relations but actually enhanced relations the, the amount of money flowing to egypt under trump was truly jaw-dropping despite the daily human rights abuses um and it, it's egypt egypt it's not that special but it also every now and then the uniqueness of things that go down really make us all scratch our heads like just a couple months ago there was a baker who had a commission to make some cupcakes for a, a private reception. And the women 
who were running the private reception said, oh, do, let's do something cute. Make the, make the icing decoration in the shape of penises. It'll be funny. And the baker does this in good faith. It's a contract and is arrested the next day because something leaked out on social media. So this is, this is a country where the, everyone's looking over their shoulders and a climate of fear is the order of the, of the day. And we, uh, you know, Canada should not be colluding with this. We should be, you know, playing a constructive role, trying to bring an end to this regime. Well, you know, you know, on that note, you mentioned uh, Sarah, she emigrated to Canada uh, as a refugee, but Canada does not have a perfect record. I mean, no, no country does. Um, we're, we're certainly better than others, I think, but there are other aspects that we could work on. But why do you think people choose Canada as, as a place to, to come and be free? It's Canada, Canada's initiative around giving, giving refuge to the, the, the queer refugees who were all arrested. The, the number is, is massive. The actual number of arrests from that one flag waving incident at the Mashu Leila concert in Cairo, it's, it's sort of jaw dropping. And Canada really stepped up and said, like, like a few other countries, like um, the US under Obama, Op had opened up a, 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 a track of LGBT refugees, LGBT folks qualifying for refugee status and actively encouraging that. And so Canada, Canada stepped up and really facilitated and made that happen with the leadership of Rainbow Railroad, who deserves a big shout out for their ongoing, ongoing terrific work. Um, but uh, there's, you know, I, I've, I belong to a, um, a group called Anti-69, which is trying to keep alive a critical relationship to the Canadian state and saying, oh, stop patting yourselves on the back around, oh, you're, you're so good around gay rights and this and that and blah, blah. You know, actually, the actual Canadian track record around LGBT rights is historically atrocious and even recently still mixed. It's not a it's not the glowing track record that Justin likes to claim and pat himself on the back for. And I think that that critical role of keeping people accountable and reminding people about true history, about our actual history, is is a big job for all of us. Would you consider yourself an activist filmmaker or a filmmaker who and an activist, a filmmaker who is an activist? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> but they're they're definitely hand in hand for me. It's it's been I, I I moved to Toronto from London, Ontario in 1978 and came out as queer, came out as an artist in the same year. And it's been it's been really 40 plus years of um, that in that those two things being tied together um, in rich and, and challenging ways. Um, and it's been a fascinating journey because uh, there's a real community of artists who came of age around the same time. And our formation was very similar. That um, idea of art for social change was, you know, at the center of what we were doing and what we hope to, what we hope to continue to do. And some of that work now is also about making opportunities. You know, we're we're older generation now, so making opportunities available for new generations of artists, especially those who haven't had so much access. As, as someone who's who's been in the game for a while, how would you compare sort of the new generation of millennial and even Gen Z activists against maybe Boomers and and Gen X? I I feel like the riches of the internet, the riches and, and swamps of the internet, you can, you can, there's, there's so much there, you can find an optimistic answer of extraordinary people stepping up and speaking out. And you can equally find the narcissists and the, the, the selfie trolls and the, the, the monstrous behavior that we witness on the internet daily is somewhat offset by the genuinely inspiring work of people finding finding their voices and speaking out, and I think uh, particularly around environmental justice, um, the the global youth movement is genuinely applauded for being 
so energizing and oh my god i hope that these 15 and 16 year olds can save us because our generation is certainly doing no good at all um in terms of the planet but maybe the seven the 16 and 15 year olds can can actually save us from ourselves what what do you think us in in the west activists in the west whether it's human rights you know social justice environment can learn from activists in more oppressed countries there, i have i had the direct experience of that when i was back and forth between toronto and cape town making a film about aids activism in south africa and aids activism in canada and it was a portrait of two activists zaki ahmed and tim mccaskill and it was a strange opera documentary um, and there was narrated by an albino squirrel so it was a bit artsy to say the <laughs> least but i think the crucial thing the crucial argument of the film was that it was actually documenting how for us in the west a generation of activists in both toronto and new york in particular had had learned and benefited hugely from the leadership of activists in South Africa, specifically around AIDS treatment access. So the leadership that was happening in Cape Town was having a global impact and we were following the lead. We were um, part of their camp. We were joining their campaigns and their leadership um, in terms of fighting big pharma. So I think in a neoliberal globalized economy, sometimes the best tactics are absolutely about not just not just stepping down or stepping back but rather joining the campaigns that are led from the global south you know you you it's funny we we talk about how this is a you know story of correctism narrated by by birds and recently we've sort of heard you know tongue-in-cheek stories coming out of science about you know gay penguins or anything like that is is that something you think would interest you as a story uh in in the future get you like the the homosexuality in 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 nature it's it's in fact it's the very center of a film that's been in my edit room way too long right yeah i'm sure you're t completely on top of ryan silo the new york gay penguins who in turn spawned gay penguins all over the world and zoos all over the world, including Buddy and Pedro here in Toronto at Toronto Zoo, and who raised a chick and, and you know, get the gay marriage lobby adopted gay penguins everywhere as their symbol of monogamy and everything about it was anthropomorphism at its worst and ridiculous, but fascinating in terms of culture wars and how we try to put words in birds' mouths, put, putting words in poor birds' mouths and make them fight our battles. So I've been doing, um, it's it's again an opera, a crazy opera documentary. And instead of an albino squirrel, the two main characters are the gay penguins, Buddy and Pedro from Toronto Zoo. But it's about uh, queer solidarity with Palestine. And so that's hopefully been finished this year. And so um gay penguins and all their glory will will soon be in a theater near you um and uh yeah i've been living with the penguins too long so i'm overdue to push them out the door i i don't i don't know how um you know sort of not not ironic but kind of humorous i guess you want to get but i don't know if you're aware there's a in i guess um, for birds there's a term called jizz j-i-z-z <laughs> I will look this up. What does it mean? Uh, it's the overall impression or appearance of a bird garnered from, you know, their features like shape, posture, flying style, or habitual movements. They're jizz. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's going straight in the script. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, you, you, you mentioned that you, you're thinking of maybe doing a, a revisit or, or, or a sequel to, to uh, International Dawn Chorus Day. Um, any, any thoughts about making a, a feature length of, of this type of story? I think that, I think Zoom fatigue is already making this film a little difficult to get, <laughs> get out there because people are so tired of the grid. But back when, back when we shot it almost 10 months ago, 
um, it was still, uh, you know, a, there, there was novelty left in it. But nowadays, the, the novelty of the grid is just, like we, we want to escape the grid more than anything. Um, that said, I've, I've, I love the idea of instead of 40 cinematog co-cinematographers from around the world, this time pushing for 80 and making it, you know, it's that sort of solidarity action because that's what the grid is truly representing is, you know, people speaking up as a, almost as a petition. It's a different way to, to write a collective letter or sign a letter saying, let these people go, open the prisons, let these people go. So I feel like, yeah, we should, we should figure out something. I, I can help but notice that you use the term, let the people go, which of course, Moses, Pharaoh in Egypt, I, I imagine that was intentional. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's get this barge unstuck. <laughs> what do you what do you want people to take away from this film? I, on the one hand, awareness about Egypt and the, and the ongoing nightmare of, of Sisi and his regime of locking up half his citizenry. But on the other hand, uh, the, the hope that those murals represent and those songs represent that, that Shadi and Sarah's lives, far from being forgotten, have actually been taken up and, and touched people all around the world. I was so, uh, like that really was the turning point in our edit when I, Googling, you know, we're all locked at home and we're cut off from the world, but Googling allowed me to discover murals around the world painted in her honor during lockdown. So people outdoors painting her face, a woman they've never met. And there, it, seem, it seems to me there's extraordinary hope in that. Um, if, we can, if we can get our paints out and paint, paint, paint our faces and, and remember each other, um, we do stand a chance. What is the first thing you'll do when you know, lockdown is over, vaccines have been issued, and we can, you know, go out and about again. Shoot a real film. <laughs> <laughs> this is a real film, but shooting with, shooting with actors and crew in the same room will be a joy. It'll probably be outdoors uh, because that's, that's, in fact, more fun. But, yeah, going to camera sometime this, later this summer. Well, the film is International Dawn Chorus Day, uh, and it's premiering at the uh, Hot Docs uh, Film Festival, I believe, in uh, in Toronto. And for those who don't know, International Dawn Chorus Day is the first Sunday in May, if I'm correct on that. Yes, and the the um, just a quick note: it's also going to show up at Inside Out, which is Toronto's queer film festival. So two chances, two chances in Toronto to check it out. And then for people who are not in, in, in Toronto, how can they, how will they be able to access it? To, um, Hot Docs is, and Inside Out, I think are both Canada-wide. Internationally, there will be other festivals coming up. We're on, we're on sort of the festival tour now. And so we were in Berlin and now it's, it's rolling out around the world. And so depending on whoever, who, on their geo-blocking or lack thereof, um, it'll pop up all over, but um, you can uh, Google VTAPE, V-T-A-P-E dot org, um, and they'll, they'll probably have updated listings. Well, uh, it's a very fascinating, unique film and proves that we can make art uh, even in lockdown from the comfort of our own homes. Uh, John Grayson, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. All right. Have, have a good one. Stay safe over there. Okay. All right. Ciao. That was my conversation with John Grayson. His new experimental documentary short, International Dawn Chorus Day, is out now. That does it for the latest episode of Endeavors. Thanks for sticking around, those of you who were waiting for a new episode. Uh, I want to dedicate today's show to my good friend Sam Weinstein. Sam, I know you're in a battle right now. You're a fighter. You got this. 
I'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Ciao for now. I just like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>